Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 3rd, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. Happy to welcome you to another edition of our program. It's your source each Friday for commentary and insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on all manner of appellate law issues and developments and cases. Today we'll discuss two issues regarded recently by the U.S. Supreme Court. One involves the right to register quote-unquote disparaging trademarks, and the other issue is the doctrine of qualified immunity. The former of those two issues, heard oral arguments before the Supreme Court recently in the case of Lee v. Tam, in which a band comprising Asian Americans attempted to register their group's name, the Slants, as a trademark. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office refused the registration as violating Section 2A of the Lanham Act, which forbids the registration of trademarks that might tend to disparage groups of people. Indeed, the very fact that the term slants has been used to disparage Asian Americans is the reason the band selected it, with the intention of rehabilitating and reappropriating the term. Notwithstanding that beneficent aim, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board affirmed the registration denial, but the Federal Circuit reversed, leaving SCOTUS to decide whether denial of trademark registration here is a, a violation of First Amendment free speech rights. Anna Rose Matheson, the California Appellate Law Group, walk us through the lively oral arguments in which justice has expressed healthy skepticism over the constitutionality of the arguably vague and content-based prohibition. Then, John Whitesides of Angelo Kilday and Kilduff will discuss another issue recently regarded by the country's high court, that of qualified immunity. SCOTUS has revisited this issue actually several times over the past few terms, and in all instances has reversed lower courts that have denied qualified immunity defenses. Mr. Whitesides discusses why lower courts tend to struggle with the doctrine, and what appellate attorneys should have in mind when mounting or facing a qualified immunity defense, or when bringing an interlocutory appeal of such a ruling. Before we get to my guests, I'd like to remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for you having tuned into the program. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Complete that, and one hour of CLE credit can be yours. Without any further preamble, then, we'll move to my chat with Anna Rose Matheson from the California Appellate Law Group. Very happy to welcome to the program Anna Rose Matheson, a partner with the California Appellate Law Group, a boutique appellate firm in the Bay Area. Ms. Matheson, welcome back to the podcast. Wonderful to be back, Brian. As usual, when you're on the show, we'll be chatting about a very interesting Supreme Court case now pending before the, the country's high court. This was Lee v. Tam, a free speech First Amendment challenge to a federal statute that restricts trademark regulation to marks that uh, disparage. And heard arguments earlier this month. Before we get into the analysis here, there's kind of a lot of different interwoven elements, questions as to just the nature of this speech, uh, whether it is in fact speech, and what these regulations in fact entail, you know, who's doing the speaking, and what sort of scrutiny should be applied, all that good First Amendment stuff. But let's start maybe at the, the beginning, and you can tell me who the party was, the original plaintiff that was challenging this federal statute. So he is the front man for a band called The Slants, which describes himself as playing Chinatown dance rock. It's a, uh, a Portland band that is trying to get their name trademarked. And so they, in interviews, have described their band name as coming from a variety of factors. They have a different slant on life. It sounds like a fun kind of mid-80s poppy band name. There's slanted guitar chords. 
But one of those key purposes was to reclaim a disparaging term. Um, all members of the band are Asian American, and slant is a term that has, in some contexts, been used as a disparaging term against Asian Americans. So this is an effort to essentially reclaim that term and make it a message. But their attempt met with uh, some pushback from the, the Patent and Trademark Office when they went to go register a trademark for their band name, The Slants, correct? Exactly. So the Patent and Trademark Office actually denied them a trademark, finding that their band name qualifies as disparaging. And so the Lanham Act, the statute that regu regulates trademarks, um, has a provision that um, prevents the PTO from registering uh, scandalous, immoral, or disparaging marks. And so the PTO found the slants qualified as disparaging and denied them the ability to have a federally registered trademark. Now, the, the slants prevailed at the federal circuit level. Could you walk me through the reasoning that the federal circuit court applied as to why this section, this provision should, should fall? So the federal circuit reversed the PTO's refusal to register this mark. So it starts off by saying strict scrutiny applies here because this is a content-based restriction on speech. The PTO would grant a trademark to a band with the name Asians are great, but not a band with named Asians are evil. So even though the federal circuit agreed that this mark was disparaging and could be offensive, the majority concluded that the Lands Act ban on the registration of disparaging trademarks violates the Constitution because of this content-based discrimination. The majority also said that even if intermediate scrutiny applied, which is what the government had been arguing, that here it would fail intermediate scrutiny because there's simply no substantial government interest. The entire interest of the government, the majority said, is disapproving the message. But here, you just can't trace the message to the government. That is, no one thinks the government is speaking simply because a trademark has been registered. And since no one holds the government to this speech, you can't say that the government has an interest in discriminating based on what trademarks that will grant. Um, and similarly, it went through kind of at length to show that this trademark registration process is user-funded, not taxpayer-funded. So you can't use some of the cases saying the government doesn't have to provide a program to everyone. The government can decide to provide you know, specific programs only to some groups. Sure. Okay. Now, this is a fairly big opinion and it's an en banc ruling. So there's a lot of different judges that are weighing in and a few different dissents um, to, to that majority. Could you walk me through just a, a couple of uh, the judges' opinions that, that disagreed and, and dissented? Absolutely. There were over a hundred pages of opinions here. So pretty much spanning the entire spectrum of, of arguments made. So Judge O'Malley concurred, that is agreed with the result and the reasoning of the majority. But she also would find the doctrine unconstitutionally vague. That is, she said, look, there is simply no good standard for determining when a trademark disparages, and therefore we should strike it down as, as unconstitutionally vague as well. Um, so another judge dissented in part and said um, we should find 
it's unconstitutional as to Tam. That is, the band should be able to have the trademark slant in this case because it's core political speech. Their selection of the name Tam really qualifies as expressive. But we shouldn't strike down the entire statute as facially improper because um, for purely commercial trademarks, it would be fine. They would simply be subject to intermediate scrutiny. Um, and this is really similar to, for instance, uh, a statute the Supreme Court upheld prohibiting attorneys from advertising directed at recent tragedies. Like you can't solicit people who have just had a family member killed. Um, the Supreme Court said that was fine. And, and um, one of the dissents said this is pretty much the same as, as that type of restriction. Um, it's targeted for commercial speech. And then Judge Lori dissented and said, look, the denial of trademark doesn't interfere with the mark holder's right to use the name or speech. They can say, we're called the slants. They can title all their albums the slants. They can talk about slants as much as they want. The only thing going on here is denying the right to get certain government-granted benefits that have a monopoly on the name the slants. And this is arguably government speech since the government publishes the trademarks in the Federal Register. And so finally, Judge Reyna dissented saying trademarks are commercial speech, so intermediate scrutiny applies. And this regulation upholds the government's interest in the orderly flow of commerce, so it passes muster. All of those competing viewpoints will, will come up in the, the Scottish arguments that we'll get into now. Certainly just a, a lot of different ways to construe what's going on here. Um, so. At argument, the uh, Deputy Solicitor General Malcolm Stewart begins by underlining one of those dissents, the fact that these trademark regulations are not particularly onerous, speech restrictions are not really speech restrictions in the traditional sense because um, there's a big difference between the government saying to a person that he or she cannot register um, a four-letter word uh, as opposed to saying that that person can't just say a four-letter word. Um, And he goes further and says, you know, this distinction explains why there can be other uh, restrictions in terms of trademark regulations, like uh, people not being able to register something generic or something descriptive. Those can only stand if you recognize that obviously there's some difference between trademark regulation and free speech regulation, because obviously the government couldn't stop people from saying something generic. Um, I believe Justice Breyer weighs in here. What, uh, what does he say about that argument? So Justice Breyer focuses on asking what purpose related to the objectives of trademark law does this restriction serve? So what what is the connection between this restriction and the underlying purposes of why trademark law exists? Pointing out that all those other types of things that Stuart mentioned, the fact that the government doesn't grant um, trademarks to generic marks or things that would be confusing are all related to the underlying purpose of trademark law, which is to um, allow the public to know which goods are legitimate from which consumer and to allow the mark owner to invest and protect their mark. Stuart responds that here, disparaging marks can be distracting, that you would look at a name for some of these disparaging terms and you aren't focused on identifying where the product come from, you're focused on the kind of expressive or disparaging element of that. 
Uh, Justice Breyer didn't really have much of, uh, didn't think much of that response, I think. He said he and his clerks should come up with 50,000 examples of other distracting trademarks. And in fact, many trademarks are supposed to be distracting. You're supposed to look at it and say, oh, pretty, lights, colors, fun name. I want to buy that product. Um, Not just, I know this company, but I like what this stands for, so I want to buy this product. Um, And really tried to get um, Stewart to answer how is um, barring disparagement related to the objectives of trademark law. I believe uh, Justice Kagan weighs in next on a different topic. She touches on the fact that regulations should be viewpoint neutral in government programs, such as the trademark uh, regulation program. What uh, What is the constitutional rule in that context, in the context of government programs? Um, must must uh, such restrictions be viewpoint neutral? And I believe that Stewart does try to make the contention that this provision is neutral, correct? What is his argument there? Yeah, so Stewart says this is neutral in a sense because it precludes disparagement of all kinds and casts a very broad net. And Kagan pretty much will have none of that. She says, look, that's like saying it does so much viewpoint-based discrimination that it becomes all right. That doesn't make sense. You know, you can't have a rule that you can say good things about someone, but you can't say bad things about that someone. She describes that as a, quote, fairly classic case of viewpoint discrimination. And that is... What the rule is is a little bit tricky because the government the government tries very hard to argue there is a unique rule for government programs um, that's different from the rule for government speech, um, or it, it in sometimes tries to say this this is government speech, but it tries to kind of set up this this unique program. And Justice Kagan says, well, whatever that is, the kind of most fundamental rule is even a government program can't discriminate based on the viewpoint or the content. Yes, you can have government programs and maybe you don't have to show quite as high of an interest there, but you just can't discriminate. That's the fundamental rule. You can't allow saying the American flag is great, but not the American flag is terrible. Justice Alito suggests that Stewart is stretching this concept past its breaking point that um, something like this could be okay because it's part of a government program. What is uh, Justice Alito talking about there? Justice Alito's question really comes out of the earlier discussion with Justice Kagan. And he focuses on how Stewart's attempt to create a special rule for all government programs really ends up with absurd consequences and that there isn't really any carve-out rule that can broadly apply to all government programs. So as he points out, the fire service and the police service cost money, but no one would say that the government can differentiate based on content or viewpoint for fire and police services simply because they're government programs, right? The government can't refuse to put out a fire in the church because they don't like the religious views of that church or refuse to provide police services to the headquarters of a political party that they don't like. Everyone agrees that that's not acceptable. And even Stewart says, no, that would probably cause equal protection problems. Um, but so you can't simply, as Justice Alito was suggesting, and Chief Justice Robert later chimes in to similarly point out, running the court is a federal program, and it wouldn't make sense to allow content-based restrictions in in the courts. For instance, we won't open our doors to actions dealing with 
disparaging trademarks, but not pro-trademarks. On another point, Justice Ginsburg will bring up the this issue that the, the respondents here, the initial plaintiffs, are a curious plaintiff here because the disparagement clause obviously is meant to keep from offending people with disparaging trademarks. But this group is trying to do sort of the opposite. They're trying to ameliorate the offensiveness of this term. They're trying to make it less offensive by reappropriating. They are among the class that it supposedly disparages. Could you tell me to what extent this this impacts the, the constitutional analysis, the fact that uh, this group is trying to do sort of the opposite of what the disparagement clause is there ostensibly to protect against? I believe Justice Kennedy also gets into this a bit later. Would this be any bit any different if the band um, you know, were saying something that but yeah, Asians were terrible or something like that, if they were actually meaning some offense to, to a group? Well, it certainly makes the case much more factually sympathetic. Um, as Justice Ginsburg notes, takes the sting out of the word that this is, this is a band made up of people from the um, disparaged group and that they are very actively, you know, they go to Asian American men cultural forums and try to raise awareness and are really trying to um, promote cultural awareness and sensitivity. Stewart's response is that in this case, the trademark examiner went through this issue in detail and agreed that the sincere intent of the band was to use the name as a symbol of Asian American pride. That is, everyone agrees their intent was kind of to reclaim this. But the inquiry here is an objective one on what's the impact on listeners and, and people who experience this word. And the examiner found lots of evidence on the internet that some people would still find this term disparaging. So I think Stewart's response to it is that this is basically a factual dispute and usually we defer to the, you know, we have some sort of degree of deference on the fact. But it's possible that the fact here, it, it, that it does seem like a, a non-disparaging type of use of the term might be something that feeds into the argument that the statute is vague. More than just uh, mere curiosity, good reason to bring up that point because pending currently, I believe, in the Fourth Circuit is a case that's also received some notoriety that revolving around the Washington Redskins and their challenge to their own trademarks being revoked. I don't necessarily know if anyone would subscribe in, invidious motives to the team, right. but they certainly don't have the the same background as this group trying to re- reappropriate and rehabilitate the term. So um, it seems interesting that this point is is being hashed out in in this case. Exactly. So the Redskins case is actually a great example because if you're a fan of the First Amendment in this context, and what you want is the kind of broadest range of First Amendment free speech in the trademark context. You're definitely going to be glad that the Lee versus Tam case got to the Supreme Court before the Redskins case, because certainly the Redskins case is, I think, far less sympathetic from a cultural sensitivity type of perspective. It's um, Mm -hmm. unlike this case, there isn't any sort of suggestion that this is being used for a a purpose of reclaiming the name. It is instead a vestige of, of the past that is is far less sympathetic. 
You touched on this as part of one of the dissents at the federal circuit, the issue of vagueness pertaining to this this restriction. And certainly when you read it, you know, if you're reading this in a constitutional law exam, I think the first thing that would come to mind is that this section saying disparaging marks are not okay is just patently vague, uh, not terribly precise. Why does Stewart contend that vagueness concerns here are, are not dispositive? So Stewart agrees that it's not an entirely bright line test, which, you know, is a serious understatement here. And I'm, I'm impressed if he managed to say that with a straight face. Um, but he argues still that it's sufficiently clear. He tries to kind of rebuff the point made by the other side that there are a large number of inconsistencies in the way that this um, is applied over time by saying, few factual inconsistencies aren't a problem, um, particularly when most of those occur in instances like here, where a group is trying to change the context of a word. That is, taking a term that could be disparaging if used in other contexts and try to recapture it. Um, but still, I think the the other side, and certainly the briefs, just have a significant number of things that you look at and say, huh, if those two decisions were both issued. Something has to be wrong here, and the statute just can't, doesn't have enough content for it to be consistently applied. So, for instance, they, the trademark office denied a trademark for, have you heard that Satan is a Republican? But it granted a trademark to the devil is a Democrat. Um, and there's a bunch of kind of other examples like that where very similar phrases were um, granted or denied, depending on who the examiner was. There's actually a great amicus brief by um, the San Francisco Dykes on Bikes group, um, which kind of chronicles its own history trying to get a trademark for the Dykes on Bikes march, and or bike ride, I guess, uh, and how it has gotten trademarks and then been denied, really just based on what the the examiner is that gets their trademark application um, and whether or not that particular person, you know, sitting in some office thinks that the term Dykes has, has now been reclaimed or still has um, kind of disparaging connotations. Now we'll move on to the argument of the respondents counsel, the, the band's attorney, John Connell. Um, as Mr. Connell begins his argument, Justice Sotomayor, highlights the fact that, you know, maybe if you take a broader perspective, the the burden here is fairly slight when we're coming, we're talking about a restriction on speech. So, you know, the, the slants are in no way prohibited from using their name. And they're also even able to avail themselves of certain trademark protections, I believe. Uh, Justice Byer also reinforces her point that there isn't such a burden. W- what does Connell say in response? So Connell's argument here is that the registration program is widely available. This isn't some particularly unique program that is just designed to encourage a small subset of positive speech. It is broadly available to companies across the board. um, And that in that context, using the disparagement clause to selectively deny legal benefits that would otherwise be available to mark holders expressing a certain type of view that the government doesn't like is improper and essentially denies legal protection necessary for the band to compete in the market price. Um, and I think 
potentially a good kind of analogy here is that yes, just because the fact that they can say this in in many other places and they can they can say these words still doesn't allow the government to have viewpoint discrimination in the regulations it does provide would be to a public park. It wouldn't be any excuse for the government to say, oh, well, this particular park, we don't want you to say, you know, bad things about government officials. But you can say bad things about government officials anywhere else, right? That wouldn't be a permissible regulation. Um, and usually the ability of the speaker to speak in other contexts doesn't excuse a content-based regulation in the challenge context. It does seem like Kamala actually goes a bit too far in arguing what uh, the trademark board could not do. He, he makes the argument that is not ascribed to him by the justices that a libelous trademark could not be refused registration. Uh, could you tell me a bit, bit more about that exchange? Yeah, so he is definitely gung-ho, full throttle on the side of free speech. He is not kind of pulling punches here. He starts off just responding to questions um, about whether, for instance, a non-Asian band that used makeup to make fun of Asians would um, be able to register the trademark, the slant, and he said, yes, absolutely. Um, and that is, I think, not necessarily that controversial. But then he goes on to say, you even have to be allowed to trademark phrases like, Joe Jones is a jerk, or Smith's beer is poison, saying that about a competitor. And that actually causes Justice Breyer to say, oh my goodness, <laughs> um, and point out that there's really tons of laws that prevent you from trashing your competition. Uh, Justice Sotomayor jumps in to say that there's actually two parts of the statute and one part bars you from falsely suggesting there's a connection to another product. Um, Connell at that point says that's unconstitutional as well, which Sotomayor responds, well, that makes no sense. Um, but he's then rescued, um, in a sense, by Justice Alito, who jumps in to throw him a softball and say, well, surely Congress could bar trademarks for the narrow, historically defined categories of libel and slander that have always been outside First Amendment protection. And he even waffles a little bit on this, but then eventually agrees that, yes, those kind of historically defined categories that are outside First Amendment protection, those could be legitimate bases for excluding trademark. At this point, Justice Kagan steps in to, to ask about the issue of government speech and specifically why this might not be regarded as government speech. Um, and she says there could be a, a couple of different reasons. One, that the government lends its imprimatur to to trademarks that are registered, and more materially, it, it includes them in publications and registers that are disseminated around the world. Um, it seems like an important question to settle in terms of you know, whether or not this is government speech, because other Supreme Court cases where the government is seen to have been speaking, including some vanity license plate cases where the government could refuse to put the Confederate flag on them, um, were affirmed by the Supreme Court. So I guess what... Uh, what is Connell's response here as to why there should be a government speech? So he says that all this reprinting and including this, the trademarks and register, that's really no different from keeping government records. It's like marriage records. Those aren't government speech. The control over the trademark 
is at all points retained by the owner. That is by reprinting a list of things that trademarks have been granted to. The government isn't speaking. It's in a sense reporting on facts and it's not doing sort of any speech on its own. And that's different from, for instance, the license plate case, which I think is, is a relatively recent one, which is the one that I certainly thought of first when I was trying to think of the best arguments on the other side here. Um, and so that license plate case said that it is okay for a state to not put all messages on a license plate because those are government speech themselves. They are produced by the government. They say, you know, Texas at the top with the slogan at the bottom. So because the government is the one speaking with those license plate holders, um, just as a historic matter and a practical matter, the government can reject statements that it dislikes. Here, Connell says, this is nothing like that. This is simply the government reporting on what marks have been granted trademark status, what marks have been registered, um, but the control is kept by the owner. And this uh, this was actually one of the a, a big issue in the federal circuit as well. Um, the government has been been making this argument the whole time, and that's really where they focused their argument. They they weren't even really trying to argue um, it would pass strict scrutiny. They're instead saying well, this is a government program and or government speech, and that is different. And the federal circuit wouldn't have any of that, as it it pointed out. Look, no one thinks the fact that the government grants trademarks to Coke and Pepsi means the government is specifically endorsing those. As uh, Connell concludes his argument, what exactly is the rule he's looking for here? Because it seems like he's making coming just up to saying that the government can't restrict anything in the trademark context that it couldn't restrict in just a general free speech context. But in the rebuttal, as Deputy Solicitor General Stewart notes, you know, that obviously there are some things in the trademark program that must be able to be uh, regulated. Otherwise, the trademark program would just sort of fall apart. So w- what do you think the rule is that McConnell is advocating? Well, so the what he says he's advocating is that the government can't burden the non-commercial aspects of a trademark. So it can put restrictions on the commercial aspects, which are the ones that identify the source of the product. Um, so for there, if, if your mark is, say, confusingly similar to Coca-Cola, the government could say, no, we're not going to grant you that because there is a commercial confusion between your mark and another product. That is, the commercial aspect of your mark is the one that identifies the product. Here, it's potentially confusing, so the government could deny a trademark to someone who tried to trademark, say, Coca-Cola, but without the hyphen, and said, oh, well, it's different. Connell says what they can't do is place any burdens on the non-commercial aspects, which are the ones that provide expression, um, political views, or simply feelings that you want to associate with the product. But it's it's definitely a hard thing to draw the line on and to figure out exactly where you differentiate the non-commercial from the commercial aspects. Yeah, it seems like a, a delicate thing to parse. In your opinion, who do you think has the stronger argument here? It seems like there are some strong ones on, on both sides. Uh, on one, the fact that the burden could be seen as not terribly onerous. On the other side, the fact that this restriction certainly has the, the appearance of a restriction on expression and, and certainly a vague one. Uh, who do you think has, has the stronger case? I think the attorney for the government got hammered at argument. 
the attorney for the band got a lot of tough questions, but many of those questions were based on the kind of extreme positions he was taking in support of free speech. Whereas the government's attorney got really tough and somewhat skeptical questions based on what is the core of the position the government pretty much has to argue. Uh, that is that there should be a special rule for government programs that trademark qualifies as a government program and that within this context, the government is allowed to engage in some very broad-based viewpoint discrimination, such as disparaging. Then last one, in terms of the constitutional formula that the court will put this case through, um, we're talking about strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny, a commercial speech test. Uh, what do you think that will look like and what sort of resulting rule do you think uh, might come out of this case? Well, that's a good question. And frankly, the court might punt here. It's, it's somewhat hard because this, this is different in some ways from a regulation barring speech itself. Um, but still, the court didn't seem fully on board with doing what the government wanted to do is kind of having this special category of government programs where the government could have viewpoint discrimination. So I think the easiest thing for the court to do is simply fall back to the rule that Justice Kagan was pushing repeatedly in argument and say, whatever the government did, even if this is a special government program, the most fundamental rule is the government cannot discriminate based on content or viewpoints. They can't have a program that privileges a particular viewpoint and not another simply based on whether or not they like or don't like that viewpoint. Um, so I think kind of focusing on rejecting the government's argument there and saying this program fundamentally discriminates based on viewpoint would be a way for them to kind of avoid exactly placing it into either the intermediate or strict scrutiny categories um, and would be a relatively easy way to get a significant portion of possibly all the justices on board. Well, we'll certainly find out soon enough. For now, I'm sure the slants are enjoying all the additional listenership that they've gotten from the, the SCOTUS watchers uh, uh, tuning into YouTube to see what they sound like. In fact, the band even wrote a song about this trademark battle. They uh, have a song, including the lyrics, Sorry if we try too hard to take back some power for ours. The language of oppression will lose to education until the words can't hurt us again. Anna Rose Matheson the California Appellate Law Group. Your words never hurt us. Thanks again for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Great to be with you, Brian. One more time, that was Anna Rose Matheson, the California Appellate Law Group, discussing the recently heard oral arguments of Lee versus Tam. We'll move now to my discussion with John Whitesides on qualified immunity and the recent Supreme Court ruling reiterating the fact that lower courts just haven't quite been able to get this doctrine quite right. I'm pleased now to welcome to the program Mr. John Whitesides, Principal Attorney at Angelo Kilday and Kilduff, where he handles the group's appellate practice. Mr. Whitesides, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. We're discussing today a particular species of appeal, the, the interlocutory appeal, which, uh, of course, unlike the typical appeal, takes place in, in the midst of litigation, uh, sort of pauses litigation, to, to some extent, um, and it's a certainly, and we'll be we'll be discussing it specifically in the context of qualified immunity appeals because, uh, for one thing, they seem to be 
to represent the lion's share of interlocutory appeals you might hear about, and also because qualified immunity, the area of law, has been the subject of some particular U.S. Supreme Court notice over the past few terms, including recently this month in a case that um, where the court again overturned a lower court and re-clarified that it, uh, with some exasperation, that it feels the lower courts are having some trouble with uh, this particular doctrine, qualified immunity, which of course usually comes up in cases, civil rights cases against law enforcement officers. Um, so with that laid out, let's go ahead and start at the beginning with qualified immunity and um, its provenance, speaking sort of in constitutional law terms, it's fairly recent, but I believe it's been around since um, the 1970s or so. When and how was that doctrine established and what uh, does it provide for? Well, Brian, it it began in sort of pieces following the Civil Rights Acts of the early 60s. And by the time you got into the 70s, although most um, immunity cases involved absolute immunity, like legislative or prosecutorial or judicial, there were a few cases that talked about a lesser form called qualified, but it was very limited in its scope and application. It had a malice exception and therefore was rarely used um, by practitioners until uh, 1982 when the Supreme Court in Harlow versus Fitzgerald formulated qualified immunity as it is now applied today and that is with no state of mind exception. So a purely objective standard rather than a subjective one that had sort of uh, floated around in the uh, late 60s and 70s. Great. Um, what, uh, what exactly is that objective standard, the, the test that's applied? Well, there's two parts. The, the first part is whether the law was clearly established uh, in such a way as to apprise the defendant official that his actions would violate the Constitution. Uh, and that stems from the philosophy of the doctrine, which is to protect public officials from the threat of suit unless they do something that is obviously illegal as far as the Constitution goes. The second part of it is, if the law is clearly established, under those particular circumstances, could a reasonable official have believed that his conduct was lawful? So it's a kind of a fine distinction, but the first one's a purely legal test where you just see a snapshot in time and look at what the law has been articulated to be. The second one is a more fact-specific focus where you say, well, even though the law was pretty clear because there was this, that, and the other factor circumstance, even though he was wrong, a reasonable official could have made that same mistake, and we don't want to punish people for a legitimate mistake, even if it does violate the Constitution. And that motivation to not want to punish individuals, uh, even if their actions might, to some degree, violate the Constitution, to not punish them in their individual capacity, seems to also come into play in the fact that qualified immunity 
denials. So if an officer is denied qualified immunity, those are immediately appealable in the interlocutory form that we're discussing. Why? Uh, what is the, the logic behind qualified immunity denials being immediately uh, brought on appeal? In the 80s, I think around 85, uh, the Supreme Court, in a case called Mitchell versus Forsyth, decided that because the immunity is not from liability, but rather from suit, it would be effectively destroyed if the case was allowed to go to trial before the immunity was decided. So to preserve the integrity of that immunity from suit, the court decided that it fell within the uh, rare exception for interlocutory rulings that should be immediately appealable, because if you had to wait until final judgment to bring up the denial of immunity, effectively you would have already lost the immunity and the reversal that you might obtain would be practically worthless. So what's the point of having qualified immunity as it, as it stands if you could still go through a trial after being wrongly denied its, its benefits? Correct. As you hint at, immediate appealability is a fairly rare procedural device, correct? Aside from qualified immunity rulings, are there many other types of suits that are entitled to this kind of appeal? Not in general. I mean, there, you know, federal law is a little different than state law in that, you know, with federal law, there are particular statutes in particular parts of the U.S. Code that bear on whether or not something is appealable at a certain point, whereas with state law, it's more general. But the only other uh, non-sort of subject area specific interlocutory appeal that I'm aware of as a matter of right is the denial of uh, a right to arbitration under the Federal Arbitration Act, um, which does come up with some frequency. And that has a similar philosophy. Courts want to preserve the right to arbitrate, and so Congress made it immediately appealable. But other than that, uh, most people have to go through the old-fashioned way, which is asking the district judge to certify the question for interlocutory appeal, which the judge may or may not agree to do. And even if the judge does it, the circuit court doesn't have to take it. So to have an interlocutory appeal as a matter of right is indeed a rare thing. The United States Supreme Court has taken a multiple cases involving qualified immunity over the past few terms. It seems like a fairly straightforward doctrine. So if an officer is not clearly violating some law or clearly cognizant of the fact that he, is, he or she is doing so, um, qualified immunity exists. Why has the Supreme Court had to, to revisit this issue at least once in each of the past three terms? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, since you know, Harlow came out in the 80s, I think the Supreme Court has taken up qualified immunity probably a dozen times, um, which is really incredible if you think about it. And uh, it's done so, I think, for a variety of reasons. And the, the, the two most common seem to be, one, lower courts trying to restrict the doctrine's applicability in a way that the court won't tolerate, uh, and that can be either substantive or procedural. 
Uh, so, for example, uh, expressing clearly established law as a broad proposition rather than uh, in the specific parameters of the case in front of it. That's a very common mistake that the court gets particularly annoyed by. And then uh, procedural. Uh, the lower courts have tried to find procedural ways to restrict qualified immunity. Uh, initially, it was that you could only do one interlocutory appeal. And then the court came out in a case called uh, Barron's and said, no, you don't. You can do more than one. You can appeal after a, a denial of a motion to dismiss, and then you can bring forth evidence and a summary judgment. And if that doesn't work, you can appeal then too. So they had to clarify that. Uh, there were other efforts by the lower courts to to try to dodge it on the grounds that there were factual questions, uh, and the court had to narrow that as well by saying um, you can still appeal even though there's a factual question uh, by assuming the facts uh, per the plaintiff's version and uh, using your entitlement based on that view of the facts, even if you haven't admitted them or don't agree with them. So, you know, the lower courts just haven't wanted to play ball, and the court just will not let it go. And that's why we keep seeing so many decisions on this. Teasing out that substantive problem that you mentioned, the Supreme Court not feeling that lower courts are addressing this question with enough specificity that uh, does seem to come up recurringly, most recently in the, the White versus Polly decision from earlier this month. What is the court saying there when it says the, the lower courts are using too much generality when they're applying this question and that specificity is, is needed? Well, what I've experienced happen um, in the district court, as well as reading the Supreme Court's opinions, is that you'll get uh, district judges who will say, well, the Fourth Amendment's uh, prohibition against an unreasonable search was established uh, decades ago, and therefore uh, the law is settled. And what the Supreme Court has had to do over and over again is say, no, that's not your analysis. Your analysis is, to take what the law is in a similar factual setting. So, for example, not whether the Fourth Amendment prohibits an unreasonable search, but does the Fourth Amendment prohibit a certain type of search in a certain type of situation? That's what you're supposed to be analyzing. Um, and for whatever reason, the, the district courts uh, and the circuit courts even have, have struggled with that. As a, a policy matter, why is it so important that courts take a specific look at the situation uh, in the case as opposed to just saying, well, yet yeah, like warrantless searches are, are illegal or um, detentions that take too long are uh, unconstitutional? Um, why do they have to look and say, okay, in this particular situation with this particular defendant and this particular um, plaintiff, how the law should apply. Why is specificity so important? Because your ultimate goal is to determine if the public official defendant had 
sufficient notice that what he was doing would violate the Constitution. And if you factual parameters that the officials operating in, you can't get a workable answer to that question. Put yourself in his approximate situation and say, okay, in that situation, would it have been obvious that what he was about to do would violate whatever amendment? And not just what that amendment stands for in general. The problem I think that courts have is that this is a spectrum. On the one hand, you don't have to have a case that's completely on point with the same factual circumstances. On the other hand, it can't be a general proposition. And I think judges struggle with where in between are they supposed to be. And even though the Supreme Court articulates it, I think Implementing it in the courtroom has proven to be challenging. Okay. Let's get into that most recent Supreme Court articulation of the rule in the case White vs. Polly from uh, earlier this month. Uh, briefly, could you walk me through the facts here and the officer in question's conduct and why the lower courts denied qualified uh, immunity and then eventually why the Supreme Court reversed that? Well, that's a good a good case uh, as an exemplar of what we've been discussing. In White, the officers arrive at this residence to investigate uh, you know, a misdemeanor report because a reckless driving offense. And allegedly, they do not properly identify themselves as police officers, which is a, a fairly common claim by plaintiffs in civil rights cases uh, that they shoot at officers, obviously a forbidden thing, because through no fault of their own, they don't know that they're encountering police officers. So in this case, the first two officers to get to the scene allegedly don't identify themselves. The suspects, fearing intrusion by strangers, arm themselves and fire, officer number three arrives at the scene after the alleged failure to identify has occurred and reasonably understands that he has fellow officers under fire. So he shoots and kills one of the suspects. That spawns the suit. And so the lower courts seize on the notion that the police precipitated the uh, need for deadly force uh, by failing to identify themselves in a situation where doing so would be uh, prudent uh, and required, uh, in other words, a nighttime visit to a residence. And the Supreme Court reversed and said, well, yeah, that's correct, and we're not going to get into that um, part of the case, but that has nothing to do with officer number three, because we're looking at his conduct, and there's no authority that would have told him that when he shows up on the scene, he is somehow supposed to second-guess whether or not his fellow officers have done what they're supposed to do in terms of identifying themselves. 
he's entitled to assume that everything has been done in accordance with law and to react accordingly. Uh, and given the absence of any authority telling him otherwise, uh, he's immune. So that was a good example of how you could take a general proposition, which is uh, failure to identify yourself and, and needlessly creating a need to use deadly force um, versus uh, a particular application of that settled principle, which is an officer who isn't there at the time of the failure to identify and would have no way of knowing that that's what was going on. Okay. Uh, in the same case, another instance of taking a general rule or a rule from a previous case and trying to apply it to the, the facts at hand, I believe perhaps the strongest um, authority cited for there, there being some sort of rule that was violated was a case called Tennessee First Gardner, which stands for a proposition um, requiring officers to, when feasible, before using deadly force, to issue some sort of warning. Why was that case not um, enough of a clear authority such that the officer here, why he needed to provide some warning? Because in, in Tennessee and in the other cases that I've encountered where the courts have said, uh, even though the suspect was armed and uh, aggressive toward the officers, uh, there still could be an issue as to their use of force because they had failed to identify themselves. All those cases involved the defendants as the people who didn't identify themselves. So White was the first time that you encountered an officer who was not culpable in that regard. And the court decided that you could not impute the culpability of his brother officers to him and that there was no authority that would have uh, instructed him otherwise. There's some manifest exasperation in the opinion from the United States Supreme Court in Polly over their continual need to revisit this issue. Um, what uh, I guess what, what's going on here? Are lower courts intentionally reluctant to by this um, law the way the United States Supreme Court wants it to? Is it just a tricky doctrine to apply? Why does it keep coming up? Well, my guess is that there's two main reasons. Um, and I'm, I'm putting aside the you know political or philosophical views of a, any particular judge uh, that you know might explain the ruling in, in any case and, and going with a broader brush. I think the, the first problem is that, especially for the, the newer judges, they've never seen this before. You know, if they weren't doing constitutional work, and let's face it, you know, most lawyers who get appointed to the bench do not have primarily civil rights practices. They could be, you know, have business backgrounds or be criminal lawyers where you get at least some constitutional issues, but not others, or could come from any any field of law where this is a kind of a foreign concept. And as we discussed earlier, there aren't really any anal uh, analogs to this in other areas of the law. So I think in part it's because it's so different 
than what they're used to, and it's unfamiliar to them, and therefore they're uncomfortable with it and don't really want to apply it because they're they're just unsure. And unfortunately, for judges, typically when they're unsure, the best bet is to defer something, let it go to a jury, let it wait till later in the case. But with qualified immunity, the imperative is the opposite, to decide it immediately. And I think that's difficult for judge some judges to do. And then the second point is, is very related to the first, that I think many judges are just entrenched in the notion that if it's at all close or debatable, a jury should decide it. And, of course, qualified immunity is the converse. If it's close or debatable, a jury can't decide it. And so even for the more experienced judges, I think that just sticks in their craw. I know one policy consideration on the other side of this poly ruling, which reads the qualified immunity defense more broadly, is that if you require such a degree of specificity um, of a, a previously existing rule to proscribe the officer's conduct, that any new case that comes up could be distinguished on the fact here or there such that qualified immunity essentially would be guaranteed. Um, what do you make of, of that concern? Well, that's a legitimate concern, and that's, you're right. I mean, if if the test was, is there a case already decided that's on all fours with this one, then qualified immunity becomes a virtual, you know, get out of jail free card, uh, because it would be almost impossible uh, for the plaintiff to uh, go out and find a perfectly identical case. Um, so I think, as we talked about earlier, this is why judges struggle so much with this doctrine, is they're trying to find that middle ground. And I think the middle ground is defined as analogous. You know, are, is there a case that involves an analogous situation where, you know, just sort of basic uh, reasoning or common sense would tell you, well, if it was illegal in that setting, it would be illegal in this setting, too. But shades of gray. And I think that's something that, that's hard for the judges to know exactly where to draw the line. Do you think the Supreme Court has finally gotten its point across to lower courts? Do you think that this is the, the sort of issue that will keep coming back up, or will it uh, be fairly clarified now? I would have thought that they had gotten their point across about 10 or 15 years ago, but apparently not. Um, so there's part of me that wants to say, and I think it's pretty settled by now, but there's another part of me that thinks, well, it's been 30 years and it's not settled. What's going to make it change? I can say that there is one area that the court has repeatedly expressly ducked that does seem ripe for future qualified immunity opinions. And that is not so much what does it take for law to be clearly established, but who is capable of clearly establishing the law. In a number of decisions, the court has said, assuming that a circuit court can establish law for 
the other panels and the district courts within it. And then it goes on to analyze that prior circuit opinion and whether or not it it laid things out such that the official should have known what he's doing was unconstitutional. That's got to come to a head at some point because can one circuit clearly establish the law? I mean, the courts made it clear if there's a split, the law is not established. But what if the split is not just outside your circuit, but your circuit has one view and other circuits have a different view? The law may be clearly established in your circuit, but not in the country as a whole. So that's the issue that I see sooner or later the court's going to have to grapple with. But it hasn't so far. Okay. Uh, maybe for now, if you're an attorney working in this area, what are some considerations when you're, say, deciding whether or not to, to bring an interlocutory appeal in uh, the context of a qualified immunity ruling? What are some of the competing factors when uh, you're in that situation? Well, there's a number of, of factors that I've encountered. Uh, the first one is that as to the appealing parties, there's an automatic stay. Um, but if there are other non-appealing defendants, the stay isn't universal. It's at the district judge's discretion whether to extend it to the whole case. So if you have other defendants that aren't appealing, uh, you run the risk of discovery going on against your clients as witnesses, but not as parties, which could potentially subject them to multiple depositions. Uh, you also run the risk of depositions occurring that you can't participate in. So there are some issues there. Uh, on the plus side, um, what if you get a ruling on a motion to dismiss or a summary judgment that shows that the judge is clearly holding a standard of liability that you think is erroneous? Well, you're going to suffer under that burden at trial. Um, so one way that you can try to get relief is the qualified immunity appeal because, and I have had this happen once, you can go up, you can lose your appeal, but you can get an opinion that has a correct statement of the law so that even though you lose in a nominal sense, you win in an overall sense because now you've got law of the case that will get you a, a more accurate set of jury instructions or a better guidance for a summary judgment if it's after a Rule 12 motion, etc. So there are some cases where uh, you feel right off the bat that the judge is, is so wrong analytically that you've got to pay the money and, and accept the delay of, of the appeal uh, the, to try to get them straightened out. The third factor is, uh, is settlement. Uh, you know, a lot of plaintiffs have not seen qualified immunity before. They're not prepared for the whole case coming to a screeching halt right off the bat. Um, and I found that, that sometimes 
when you're trying to settle, a qualified immunity appeal can uh, produce significant leverage for the defense because it's a no-win deal for the plaintiff. The best he can do is survive the appeal after spending time and money doing so. He, there's, it's hard for him to gain ground through it. Possible, but difficult. So, and plus, you're in the Ninth Circuit's mediation program, which is free and excellent. So, it it really can be a useful device for furthering settlement in a case where it's uh, either stalled or whether where you're close and and you need something to to uh, you know get that last uh, get across the last gap. You mentioned the the time and delay that it takes in, in bringing the case to an appellate panel, to any extent, when you're figuring the timing of that out, say if you maybe feel like you have a very good chance at prevailing at the trial, um, would it be beneficial to perhaps go for for that as opposed to bring the appeal, or is it just a safer play to, to try to bring the qualified immunity appeal? I think it's an easier decision at the pleading stage than the summary judgment stage. At the pleading stage, if you get a ruling you don't like, but you feel that that the, the legal standard isn't too misstated or can be uh, corrected by educating the judge, and you like your evidence that you think you have or that you'll get, then you can just move forward in a conventional manner, take another shot on summary judgment, and if that doesn't go well, then you can do your interlocutory appeal. So that's an easier uh, situation. If it's a summary judgment and you don't get it, you really have to make a now or never decision because uh, if you think you have a good qualified immunity defense and uh, the judge has, has denied it, the chances that you're going to get uh, a different result at, at trial are, are probably not very good unless there is some pivotal disputed fact uh, that you think the jury would, would rule in your favor on that would resolve the immunity issue. But since it's primarily an objective standard, um, you know, more often than not, uh, if, if you lose the immunity on summary judgment, the chances of it winning a trial are not very good. I'd be curious to know from your boots-on-the-ground perspective of the qualified immunity doctrine is is doing the work that it was designed to do, keeping folks out of uh, lengthy trials and cases where they um, you know, shouldn't be be tried. I think more often than not, it does uh, because you know sometimes when you feel it's been wrongfully denied, you do succeed uh, on appeal and. So that's the most straightforward way to win, even if the district court disagrees. Sometimes the district court agrees, uh, and, and you do get out on qualified immunity at the district court. Then you don't need the appeal, and that's great. I mean, I have one case right now where there were multiple defendants. My client got out on immunity, among other defenses, uh, but other parties didn't. Well, the plaintiff can't appeal because there's no final judgment. So now the case goes on for probably years. By the time the plaintiff gets to the end, he either A, recovers the same damages from other defendants, in which case he's not going to care about my guy anymore, or B, he now has to think about 
appealing the decision made years before on my guy, which is probably not very enticing to him, as opposed to the far more recent rulings that occurred as to the uh, non-immunity defendants. So, you know, and then, of course, there are the cases that settle during the qualified immunity appeal where you get that leverage that you needed. So I think more often than not, when I've asserted qualified immunity, it has panned out and that there are probably only a couple of instances I can think of where there was a a wash where I ended up no better, no worse than I was where I started. But I spent time and money, so it's not particularly pleasing. Uh, or B, one case I remember where we, we went backwards. Uh, we got a ruling from the Ninth Circuit that was so ag- aggressively against us that it made trying the case hopeless. So that's the only time I can think of where I truly uh, regretted it. But, I mean, it was a horrible panel, too. So that's the other thing. I mean, you don't know who the panel's going to be. Maybe if I'd have had a different panel, I would have had a much different result. And that, that of course, is every appellate lawyer's uh, roulette is who's the panel you're going to get, you know, especially in the Ninth Circuit. Probably not quite as much uh, in state court. Yeah, it sounds like you're just had a section with certain appellate panels dealing with this question is, is shared uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court, at least in, in certain cases. Maybe one last one for you. Um, with some of the uncertainty among federal lower courts and federal circuits, um, and as you say, some discrepancies between how panels might rule, do you think it's fairly clear to attorneys when it's, it's useful to bring qualified immunity appeals? I think that the, the rule of thumb should be that they are usually worthwhile. Um, but there are some instances where you're not very optimistic, even with a good panel, and uh, or where it, the client just doesn't want to spend the money, um, it, it, especially in a case you think is going to settle no matter what. So sometimes that appeal can can enhance the settlement, but but you know sometimes the client will want to just forego it and, and keep negotiating. Um, but I think more often than not, it, it it's it's worth doing. Because, you know, again, if you're evaluating the case correctly uh, and it's a legitimate dispute, then the official should be out. I mean, you don't have to be clearly right. You just have to be arguably right. And, and hopefully most of the cases we as lawyers have, we think our clients arguably right um, and that there are, you know, as long as there aren't too many disputed factual issues, then qualified immunity should be one of the first things that uh, comes up as a defense. Okay. Yeah, that standard that you bring up is certainly reinforced by this recent ruling. We'll go ahead and and leave it there. Mr. John Whitesides, thanks so much for being on the podcast to speak about uh, qualified immunity. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Brian. And with that, our program for February 3rd, 2017 is complete. 
I'd like to thank both my guests one more time, Anne Rose Matheson from the California Appellate Law Group and John Whitesides of Angelo Kilday and Kilduff. I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. So much appreciated. Thanks go out to members of my production staff here, including Helen Enriquez, Ellen Ireland, and Nicholas Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>